you are listening to Radio Maria, and this is Father Toby with your word for today. And let's begin with the gospel for today's Feast of the Holy Innocents, which is taken from Matthew chapter 2. After the wise men had left, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother with you, and escape into Egypt and stay there until I tell you, because Herod intends to search for the child and do away with him. So Joseph got up, and taking the child and his mother with him, left that night for Egypt, where he stayed until Herod was dead. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, and in Bethlehem and its surrounding district he had all the male children killed who were two years old or under, reckoning by the date he had been careful to ask the wise men. It was then that the words spoken through the prophet Jeremiah were fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, sobbing and loudly lamenting. It was Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they were no more. When people find out that I was a lawyer before I became a Dominican, one of the questions I most often get asked is, do you still use any of your legal, legal skills? The answer in short is no. But I don't think I completely wasted seven years of my life being a lawyer, although I do sometimes wish that I had become a Dominican sooner. And the greatest benefit that I think I gained as a lawyer is an ability to write well and clearly under pressure. Hopefully from time to time you listen to me or read what I've written and think that this is true for yourselves. But if you think my style is lousy and that I do not appear to have derived much benefit from my time as a lawyer, then I'll borrow from Evelyn Waugh, who, when asked how he could be Catholic and still at times be so unpleasant, replied, imagine how much worse I would be if I weren't a Catholic. Being a lawyer, and especially a pensions lawyer, where documents that you drafted were deeds that might be of consequence for decades, not just for a particular transaction, gave you a real concern for language and for precision. Not infrequently, a deed drafted many years ago would cause some very real problems due to a failure to envisage some future development, simply an ambiguity with the drafting, or some sloppiness. Now, in some cases, particularly with regards to sloppy drafting, it would be perfectly obvious the meaning that the drafting was intended to convey. But sadly, we were not in the Humpty Dumpty world where the lawyer who drafted the deed could say, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. We're not there in the legal world. Words still have a very real meaning in that world, irrespective of the intention of their author. But we are getting to that situation more and more in many spheres of life, where the meaning of language is in the mouth of the speaker. This divorce between language and reality is more pronounced than ever, but it's not a new thing. When anybody suddenly changes the meaning of words, you need to be very careful. As N.T. Wright points out, in German dictionaries to this day you can still see words asterisk and then with NS, meaning that these definitions were given to words by the National Socialist Party. The Nazis 
gave a lot of words a new meaning. And think how when there was a first a debate about euthanasia, it was called assisted suicide. Now it tends to be called assisted dying, seeking to remove the reality of what's going on by cloaking it in different language. Similarly, in Stalinist Russia, there were whole categories of people called former persons. And once they were no longer persons, it became far easier to justify shipping them off or killing them. Language had been used to dehumanize. The underlying humanity of these persons had not changed. But calling them something different both helped to justify inhumane treatment and then to actually allow those tasked with torturing, killing, etc. to actually do it. They used language to blind themselves to the reality of who they were killing. The who had become a what, an object, or at least something less than human. And if you want a common example of the, le of the way language has lost its reference to any underlying reality, simply listen to a celebrity talking about my truth, as if my truth and your truth could be at odds on the same point of fact, and yet both be true. The language of my truth rejects the principle of non-contradiction, that something cannot both be the case and not be the case at the same time. Once we've rejected the principle of non-contradiction, we've essentially lost the ability to think rationally. When Humpty Dumpty insisted that words mean exactly what he intends them to mean, Alice replies, The question is, though, whether you can make words mean so many different things. To which Humpty Dumpty says, The question is which is to be master. That's all. It appears that Humpty Dumpty was a fan of the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was influential in advancing the idea that language is not ultimately about truth, but about power. For Rousseau, language was not primarily, sorry, Foucault, I mean, for Foucault, language was not primarily about saying true things about reality. Language was about power. And whoever controls language gets to create reality, and therefore wields power. Truth is not part of the picture here. And this is demonic. Yesterday I reflected on the profound language of St. John the Evangelist, on Jesus Christ, the divine creative word. He is the word, the logos, the divine reason, who brings all of reality into, our, into being. And our language is true and good to the extent that it describes, that it conforms to the reality that he has created. But with the idea that with our human language we create our own reality, then we are usurping God. And that's why it's demonic. I've already spoken about language being used to dehumanize and then to justify and make possible inhumane treatment of human beings. And nowhere is that more true than around abortion, where words such as fetus or phrases such as a clump of cells are used to deny the reality of a very young child. When we do this to our most vulnerable, then no one is really safe, and it dehumanizes us all. The other person begins to be seen as an obstacle to my will in the present moment, and I then change the language around the other person to deny their humanity, and then I feel validated in doing whatever is necessary to remove the person who is now simply an obstacle and no longer a person. 
for Herod to slaughter all those holy innocents for the sake of remaining on his throne. He must have engaged in some very real mental gymnastics, denying the reality of what he was doing for the sake of his sovereignty. Or he must already have become mad, because to be divorced from the reality of my actions is madness. And the problem is, if we keep up a denial long enough and then start to believe it, madness is what has resulted. But it's all too easy to say, I would never do what Herod did, and then still to objectify, manipulate and mistreat in so many other ways. Pornography, wage slavery, trafficking, driving an unfair bargain are just some of the ways we objectify the person in the modern day and seek to justify our sin. How many times did I deny my own dignity, perhaps, in order to justify my sin, blind myself to the reality of who I am and what Christ has done for me? We can objectify ourselves just as much as we objectify other people. And the root of so much sin as the denial of the person and instead their objectification is a point well made in one of my favourite novels from my youth, one of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. And I think it's worth listening to this passage and then to think about ways in which I might be doing this more than I think. In this book, Carpe Jugulum, Pratchett gives us an excellent definition of sin in this exchange between the omnium priest, Mightily Oates, and the rather contemplative witch, Granny Weatherwax. There is a very interesting debate raging at the moment about the nature of sin, for example, said Oates. And what do they think? Against it, are they? said Granny Weatherwax. It's not as simple as that. It's not a black and white issue. There are so many shades of grey. No. Pardon? There's no greys, only white that's got grubby. I'm surprised you don't know that. And sin, young man, is when you treat people as things including yourself. That's what sin is. It's a lot more complicated than that. No, it ain't. When people say things are a lot more complicated than that, they means they're getting worried that they won't like the truth. People as things, that's where it starts. Well, I'm sure there are worse crimes. But they start with thinking about people as things. Let's now leave you with the Coventry Carol sung by the Vienna Boys Choir. <laughs> 